most loving Father, whose will it is for us to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on you who care for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal in which you have manifested to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Roswell Community Church. My name is Priya David, and I'm the worship coordinator here at RCC. And whether you're here in this room or joining us online, we are so glad that you decided to join us this morning. Um, the psalmist says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Mankind finds refuge under the shadow of your wings. And our prayer this morning for all of us is that God will open our hearts to see his great love as precious and draw us close to him. Uh, before Steve comes up to preach this morning, I have a couple of announcements to make. Um, this Tuesday, February 9th at 8 p.m., we will be having our town hall members meeting at um, 8 p.m. again this Tuesday online. So if you haven't registered already, there are two ways to do this. One is via our RCC app, and two is our RCC Connect Facebook page. This is an interactive event. We'll be asking questions, listening to answers, and actively participating throughout the, um, the online session. So if you haven't registered already, please do so. This is open for all. So if, whether you're a newcomer or a regular attendee or a member of RCC, we would love to have you join us. One of the things we will be talking about at the town hall is next Wednesday's Ash Wednesday service. Um, the um, Ash Wednesday service is the big, marks the beginning of our Lenten season, and um, it invites us to acknowledge our mortality and sinfulness, especially by the imposition of ashes. So if you haven't participated in an Ash Wednesday service, we would highly recommend and encourage that you make time to participate this year. Uh, it will be an online service broadcasted at 3, 6, and 8 p.m. Now, if you are curious at all, how do we impose ashes during an online service, then you will have to tune in for our town hall at 8 p.m. this Tuesday. Um, we hope you'll join us. Steve will now come up and preach God's word. Good morning. Today, we're going to be reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. Proverbs, chapter 15. We're only reading one verse for our text this morning. It is Proverbs 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us 
over the last six months or so, you know that what we've been doing together is reading through the entire Bible as a congregation. And one of the things that we decided to do was that as we go through that together, that we will take some time on Sunday morning to open up one of the passages that we read together this week. And so that's why we're coming to Proverbs chapter 15. Now, last week, if you were here, you heard the sermon. What I did is I laid the foundation for the book of Proverbs by looking at specifically Proverbs 1 and talking about how wisdom, that God created the world in wisdom, that there is a grain to the universe, and that grain, according to the book of Proverbs, is the wisdom of God, and that the book of Proverbs is inviting us to live according to that grain. To do that, is to be humble. To do that is to live in the fear of the Lord. But to live contrary to that grain is folly and foolishness. So that was the foundation that we laid last week. Now, what we see through the rest of the book of Proverbs after uh, chapter nine is the specific application of that posture. To live according to the grain of God's wisdom, in the fear of the Lord, we put a single word on that, and it was humility. To live in humility is what, it, we need to have specific applications, and that's what the rest of the book of Proverbs is about. We learn about parenting and wisdom. We learn about financial decisions. We learn about the principles of the best kind of marriage, and we would do well to dwell on all of those things, but for today, I just want to focus our attention on what is arguably the most important, arguably, but I, what is the most important aspect of living in wisdom in this world, and that is our words. Words are a kind of meta-category of the wise life, because a person who uses words properly We'll find wisdom seeping out in other areas as well. Uh, well they'll, they'll see uh, wisdom in their marriage. They will see, uh, you know, a person who uses their words properly. They will find their parenting improving and their finances and on and on and on. So that's why I want to focus specifically on our words. And in order to do that, let me break it down into three headings. The first, what are words? Second, what do words do? And then third, how do we use our words for good? What are words, what do words do, and how do we use our words for good? So number one, what are words? Now you may have never thought of the nature of a word before, but if we don't understand what words are, we will never understand how they must be properly used. A faulty understanding of the nature of something leads to its misuse. For example, one of our favorite movies in the Heimler household is The Little Mermaid. We're Disney people. Um, and if you've ever seen that, which I hope that you have, it's a story of a forlorn mermaid princess who has it all under the sea, but she longs to live among the humans on land. And one of the things that her longing for human life drives her to do is to collect like human artifacts. And she stores them up in this cavern that she visits every time she wants to sing about how she wants to be part of their world. And the problem is Ariel does not understand how these objects that she has collected, 
She doesn't understand how they function. She doesn't know what they are, so that means she doesn't know what they are meant to do. But thankfully, she has a bird friend who interprets the meanings of these treasures to her. <laughs> well, I'm blanking on the bird's name. What's the? Scut what? Scuttle. Scuttle. Thank you. Thank you. Um, for example, she, she acquires a, a small metal thing that has a handle and three prongs on it. And uh, it, we would recognize that as a fork immediately. But the bird tells her it's a, you know, that's a dinglehopper. You got it. Well done. This is going to be a good day. Um, and so Scuttle tells her the purpose of the dinglehopper is to brush one's hair. And later in the film, after she has joined humans on land, she sits down on a table, and what does she see? A dinglehopper on the table. And what does she do with it? She tries to impress her guests by picking it up and doing what she believes is supposed to be done with such a thing, and she begins brushing her hair. So the point is this. If we don't understand the nature of a thing, we will not understand its proper usage. The nature of a thing and the usage of a thing are intimately connected. So, what is a word? In its most basic sense, a word is a container for a thought. Words provide meaning to thoughts. If you don't believe me, you might not be able to do this now, but maybe do it later. Try, just try to think of any object without attaching a word to it. Like, think of that thing right there. But you can't. You already, as soon as I pointed to that thing, you thought you attached a word to it, table. Because words are containers for thoughts. But on the flip side, when we do not have a word to express a thought, then we will soon lose our ability to think that thought. I'm smiling because I'm nerding out seriously up here, I, but I don't mind. I love it. I hope you don't mind either. If, if we don't have a word for a thought, we will not be able to express that thought, nor will we be able to think it for very long. C.S. Lewis put it much better than that when he said, what we forget how to say, we will soon forget how to think. For example, there's an old English word that fell out of circulation centuries ago, and it is my pleasure to reintroduce it to you. The word is groke. G-R-O-A-K, groke. And here's what it means. <laughs> to silently watch someone eating with the hope that they will ask you to join them. Is that not a great word? Is that not a great word? And my guess is that when I told you what it meant, like, first of all, it meant nothing to you. It's just a sound, groke. But when I told you what it meant, you had the same experience that I had when I first learned it. Namely, you had a kind of revelation. You entered into a kind of recognition. Either you knew that feeling because you had done it to somebody else, or you knew that feeling because you have been groked yourself. Certainly, you have if you have children. Yes? We have, we have like, sometimes we have cake in the corner. 
and it's just for the parents. We often get groped when we're eating our corner cake. <laughs> but as soon as I used other words to name what was before only half thought or half felt, then you felt like you had entered, at least in small part, a new reality. Let me give you another example. If you walked into my house and said the word sobre mesa, you'd find that everyone would have a complete understanding of what you meant. It's a word that comes to us from Castilian Spanish, so technically it's like sobre mesa. Um, I don't want to offend anybody. Um, but we have no English equivalent for that word. It means something like the time that you spend together around the table enjoying one another's company after a meal has ended. That word is spoken in our house at the dinner table almost every night. A kid will finish dinner and then has to be excused. And what do I say? No. Sobre mesa. And then they roll their eyes and, you know, but they know what it means. And the fact that we have no English word for that concept means that we have ceased to be able to even think it. As a culture, I mean, you know, we, we hardly know what it means to have family dinners anymore, let alone sit around the dinner table afterwards enjoying one another's company. There's no word for it. Therefore, there is no manner of thought or behavior that corresponds to it. You follow me? Is this, are we together? Okay, good. So words, first of all, are containers of thought. But second, with respect to the nature of words, they are communicative by nature. Words are communicative by nature. Words by nature are meant to leave one person's mouth as we're experiencing right now and enter another person's mind and if words are containers of thought, then when a word enters the other person's mind, that container is opened and then the thought implanted within that word, either for good or for evil, is unloaded. And that leads us to our second point. What do words do? We've seen what words are. Now, what do they do? And here, with all that foundation laid, we can get into Proverbs 15. In this chapter, we've got a cluster of proverbial sayings. By the way, they happen all throughout Proverbs, not just 15, but we're going to focus here. There's a cluster of proverbial sayings about what our words do. So let's look first at the effect of our words, and then we're going to see what our words tell us about our heart. So first, the effect of our words, and here we have a cluster of three Proverbs, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Then skipping to verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Then verse 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. So we can see here that Solomon is contrasting the, the two different effects 
that words can have. On one side, we see that good words have a way of inducing life into another person. In verse 1, we see that a soft answer turns away wrath. And if you've lived long enough, you, you know this to be true. When a person comes at us in wrath, in anger, hurling fiery words at us, what they expect is for us to return the fiery darts to them. Nobody gets into a fight thinking that the other person is not going to fight back. But when we are assaulted and offer soft words in return, it has a way of neutralizing the wrath. Think of Jesus when the Pharisees threw a woman caught in adultery at his feet and demanded that he pronounce judgment upon her. Now, he could have done so. He had every right to. He also could have mustered all of his prophetic strength and renounced the Pharisees themselves. But he didn't. He said with a soft answer, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then what happens? One by one, they drop their stones and they turn away. A soft answer turns away wrath. Verse 4, we see, still on the positive side of things, that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Like, have you ever been in a situation before where you deserved someone's judgment? Um, I've told you guys about this before, but it's time to tell you about it again. Um, several years ago, I had this major opportunity in my career. Um, someone very important in my field had seen my work, reached out to see if we could collaborate on a project. And this opportunity was unlooked for. It was a complete surprise to me. And to me, this was the first step into a completely new trajectory of my career, one that I desperately wanted. So needless to say, for me, the stakes were very high. And when we got on our first call to talk through the, detail, the, the details, the other guy assumed that I had a credential that I, in fact, did not have. And when he asked me about it and said, yeah, you did the thing with the training, and I was like, oh, yeah, I did that thing. And it was amazing. Like, I, I just said, yes, I've got it. And it was without thought. It came right out of my mouth, and, it, and, and you know how these things go. As soon as that happened, like 15 things happened in my mind. Like, it's like, what did, why did you say that? That's not, you don't have it. I mean, he could never find out, but you, you don't. It doesn't matter anyway. But, and then there's the thing that's in my head that's like, well, you should tell him. You should, but then it'd be, oh, but that would be embarrassing. And, you know, he, he can't find out. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like that whole spinning of the thoughts that happens. But as soon as it left my mouth, my conscience struck me deeply. I was terrified to correct myself because what if the opportunity fell apart? Well, we hung up for the next week. <laughs> it was tortured. The bones were burning. Finally, I, you know, I knew I just, I had to tell him the truth. We had another call scheduled. And I knew that, you know, if that means he can't trust me, it's the end of the opportunity, what else can I do? So 
We got on the phone. I told him I didn't have the credential. Sorry that I lied to you and just got ready for the, the blow. The next words out of his mouth were, I forgive you. It's okay, Steve. You and me are okay. Let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I spent that whole week cringing in fear because I knew what I deserved was judgment, and yet he came with words of grace. I was expecting words containing wrath to enter my mind from his mouth. It's all I deserved. But when those ended up being words of forgiveness and kindness, I'm glad we weren't on FaceTime because I was, I could hardly breathe for joy. So a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And remember your apocalyptic literature. In Revelation 22, it says that the tree of life and the leaves that grow upon it are there for what? The healing of the nations. So those are some of the good effects of our words. But as you no doubt know, and as we see witness to in these few verses, words, while they can be containers of life and goodness, they can also be containers for death and destruction. In verse 1, it says that a harsh word stirs up anger. And then in verse 4, it says that perverse words break the spirit. And these are both incredibly evocative images, so let's just dwell on them for a second. Harsh words stir up anger, says verse 1. Now, this word harsh has to do with pain. In fact, it's used in Genesis 1 to refer to the pain of childbirth. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it refers to sorrow. So harsh words in this context are words that leave our mouths that intend to provoke pain. And when those words enter another person, the freight that they carry seeks to dump its payload into the places that arouse pain within them and sorrow as well. And the image is pretty astounding. It says that when harsh words enter, they stir up anger. If you put, if you put dirt and water into a glass and just let it sit there, eventually what you would get is a layer of dirt on the bottom and clear water up top. The aim of harsh words is to reach through the clear water of a person's heart and agitate the dirt until, you know, with just a little bit of stirring, the water and the dirt are indistinguishable. If anyone has ever used words to do this to you, or maybe we've done it to other people, you'll know that the dirt which is stirred up does not easily settle. These kinds of words have, have a way of staying with us, of sticking, and their contents are released over time. And if the nature of words is communicative, like I argued in the last point, then the effect of harsh words, words intended to provoke pain and sorrow, is effectively to break off any hope of communication and thus any hope of a relationship with the other person. 
Use words like this enough and all hope of restoration is nearly beyond grasp. So the second image we're given is that perverseness, perverse words break the spirit. So harsh words stir up anger. Perverse words break the spirit. And this word perverse means something like uh, distorted or, or vicious. To speak words of distortion to another is to attempt to mar their recognition of reality. You see, the purpose of speaking words is to conform our ideas to reality. The, the reason why we hear words and give words is because we want to speak true things. And what is truth but our apprehension of reality as it really is? But to speak perverse words means to attempt to distort another person's reality. A spouse can do this very easily. We live with each other. We know how to do this. A parent can do this easily. In our frustration, we send words to another person that distort the relationship to reality. You're lazy. You're inadequate. You're foolish. You're too needy. And the thing is, some of those things could be true. But the wise person will use words that bear the cargo of healing and joy. The fool uses words that distorts the other's sense of reality, and the result will always only be a broken spirit. A broken arm can't sustain the weight of anything that it grasps. And a broken spirit can no longer sustain the weight of a healthy human personality. So those are some of the effects of our words. And I think as we've looked at these, what we can see is that words have great power. I take that as axiomatic. They have great power either to heal or to destroy. The second thing Proverbs 15 shows us, in addition to the effects of our words, is where they come from. Where do our words come from? Namely, the heart. We see that in Proverbs 15, starting in verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Then skip down to verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So here we see the origin of our words, namely the heart. And we tend to think that our words originate in our mind and that we feel emotions in our heart. But in the Bible, it is in the heart where we both think and feel. So the mind and heart are synonyms in the Bible. Now, we're still under the heading of what our words do. And here we see that our words actually provide us with insight into the condition of our hearts. If our words are filled with anger and judgment and sarcasm, 
If those are the kinds of words consistently erupting out of our mouths, then it is a clean diagnosis. My heart is angry and judgmental and sarcastic. On the other hand, if my words are filled with grace and kindness and magnanimity, then the diagnosis is clear on the other side too. My heart is full of grace and kindness and joy. And in these two verses, we are taught two postures of heart that result in life-giving words. Because that, we all want to be people whose words are, are a tree of life to other people, whose words create the conditions of flourishing in, in our, the people whom we love and the people whom God has given to us. So what are these two postures? We'll go back to verse 14. It says, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Now listen to that. The per this person has understanding, but still seeks knowledge. In other words, this is a posture of humility. We come back to that again. Humble words proceed from a humble heart. And to be clear, sometimes strong words are needed in life. I'm not dismissing that. We've read through the prophets together, and we've seen that that hard words have their season. But humility doesn't cancel out our ability to speak strongly to one another. If I'm humble, it just means that I know that my understanding of the situation, whatever situation it is, is still lacking. We all see through a glass darkly. Nobody can say, I see all angles. That, that's, that's all this verse means. That's why the wise person still seeks knowledge. It's the fool, on the other hand, on the other side of verse four, uh, 14, it's the fool that believes that he or she sees all sides with clarity. There's this old saying from the early church. It goes like this. If you say, I have enough, you are undone. Ah, that was worth the price of admission right there. If you say, I have enough, you are undone. Like, isn't that the problem with every Facebook post that makes you angry? Or every tweet that invokes your anger? It's somebody who believes, I have enough. I see it all. Let me tell you about it. That's not humility, that's pride. So, in order to have life-giving words proceed from our mouths, we must possess a humble heart. Secondly, we must also have a patient heart. That's what verse 28 tells us. It says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. On the opposite side, the wicked has no governor on his mouth. He simply pours forth speech without restraint. The wise person understands the nature of words. They understand that words are containers of thought and the cargo contained in these words have power to heal or destroy. They are either deadly weapons or healing balms. And often the difference between those two outcomes is restraint and measured consideration. 
And we all want to be that kind of person. We do. I do. Don't you want to have a humble heart that pours forth words of life? Don't you want to have a patient heart that spills over in well-timed phrases that water the ground for another person's joy to grow? Of course we do. But all of that, th th these, are, these are not clothes we can simply put on. We, we, can, we can try to curb our speech. We can try to say these kinds of words. But ultimately, all of that requires the kind of heart that issues forth in life and not in death. And that leads us to our final point. Number three, how do we use our words for good? If we want a good heart that spills over into good speech for the benefit of those to whom we direct our words, we have to have a changed heart. It's the only solution. And what's interesting is that while the state of our heart overflows into words, so too can words travel the other direction and change the state of our hearts. If our hearts are going to be humble, if they're going to be full of forgiveness, patient, abounding in joy, then we are need, in need of words that come from outside of us to make it that way. And if that's true, then let me introduce you, or at least reintroduce you to the God of the universe who speaks. And what word does he have for us this morning? John chapter 1, in the beginning, was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The most fundamental word that you and I ever need to hear is the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. Remember, words are containers for thoughts, and words exist primarily as tools to communicate those thoughts. And here the gospel of John is telling us that God has a word for us, and the content of that word is Jesus Christ himself full of grace. Think of that. In the economy of God, we were the debtors, we were the criminals. We were the sinners. And it would have surprised none of us if the word that he had for us was judgment and despair. But instead, God, out of the riches of his gracious heart, has spoken a word of grace, a word of forgiveness. And the substance of that word is Jesus Christ. And because this world has its trials and its tribulations, we can often forget that the word that God has spoken to us, and therefore the whole manner of thought that was created by those words is no longer available to us. It's easy to forget that. We forget that God has spoken by his son a word full of grace 
and therefore we go on thinking that we're under God's judgment and that at best he merely tolerates our presence at his table and that we are of little worth in his sight. And if that's how we think, if that is the state of our heart, then the words proceeding out of our mouths will match that reality. Those closest to us will hear judgment in our words because our hearts have been shaped by the conviction of judgment. They believe that we will merely tolerate them because we believe we're merely tolerated by God. And they will come to believe that we matter little to them because in our hearts we have become convinced that we matter little to the God of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, let me speak the words to you which contain the thoughts that we have forgotten how to think. And I can think of no better exposition of Jesus Christ as the word of God to you this morning than Paul's magnificent chapter in Romans chapter 8. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Number one, remember the word of God to you in Jesus Christ is that you are not condemned but forgiven. Verses one and two. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Second, you have been made righteous in Christ and his very spirit dwells in you. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Third, you are sons and daughters of God. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Fourth, because you are children of God, you are heirs of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then fifth, maybe most important, you are loved with a furious and unceasing love. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate? us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, 
These are God's words to you, about you. And if we forget how to say them, we will soon forget how to think them. But today, in this moment, let your heart be changed by them. And leave here speaking words of life to those you encounter because words of grace and forgiveness and life have been spoken to you. Amen. Well, now we come to the table of Christ, which he has set in anticipation of our arrival today. And in the first iteration of this meal that he shared with his disciples, he spoke words to them, interpreting how these elements are to be used. He took bread and he broke it. He gave it to them and he said these words, <clears throat> this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Remember Ariel and the little mermaid. If you don't understand what a thing is for, you will misuse it. This bread and this cup, they're not magic. They don't confer grace where no word of grace has been spoken. But to those whom God has but to those whom God has spoken by his son, this bread and this cup bring to their remembrance what they have forgotten how to think, namely that you are forgiven and that you are loved beyond all of your reckoning. And so, brothers and sisters, Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and then we will eat and drink. Our Father in heaven, we are in desperate need of memory for the words that you speak to us, for the good words. We've had our fair share of words that lead to our destruction. So Father, bring back to our memories the good words of Jesus Christ and the word that he has spoken, the final word on who we are. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and, sis mm. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you may eat and you may drink. Mm.